let's, let's start with an obvious fact. Um, Jesus was rather fond of parables. Yes? Yeah. Not, not that spicy. You know, you won't, it's not a very controversial line. Nobody's going to bring me up on charges uh, for that. He spoke dozens of them uh, during his time in ministry. Uh, Luke recorded about 30 of his parables. Um, and the one that we will be talking about today, kind of in our series of parables, you know, as we've been working through uh, Luke, well, as it happens, uh, there is this general consensus kind of in the scholastic theological community that this single parable is the most difficult of them all to interpret. So much so that there, there really isn't, there isn't a consensus about what it is Jesus means when he says these words, which, which is kind of rare for there to be a parable of Jesus and for theologians to say, we're not really sure. You know, we've got some good guesses. We've got some good interpretations, but we're, we're not really sure. Now, why, why am I telling you this? Um, it's not to manage expectations, though that never hurts. Um, but rather, I, I want to invite you into humility in particular as we process this parable, recognizing that it's just, it's tricky. It's, it's a little difficult. You know, Bailey was at the Rhodes this week for Bible study, and after she read this story, she's like, I don't know what I was more confused by, James's desire to ruin every single item that Rhodes has owned, or the parable. Both were, both were pretty tricky to understand. So a modicum of humility is required as we go in to this, uh, to this parable, while also recognizing these are the very words of Jesus, right? You know, something we have precious few of. And so Let's trust that the Holy Spirit can do what he will in the hearing of Jesus' words. So now hear a reading from Luke 16. Jesus also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who was informed of accusations that his manager was wasting his assets. So he called the manager in and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your administration because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what should I do? Since my master is taking my position away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what to do. So when I'm put out of management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he contacted his master's debtors one by one. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? The man replied, a hundred measures of olive oil. The manager said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? The second man replied, a hundred measures of wheat. The manager said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their contemporaries than the people of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by how you use worldly wealth so that when it runs out, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve 
God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and ridiculed him. But Jesus said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in men's eyes, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly prized among men is utterly detestable in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, we ask for help. We ask for direction. Speak to us about your word. We're listening, Father. Speak. So I've, I've noticed, and I just think it's kind of funny, I've, I've noticed this over the last few weeks. I don't know, I had noticed it before that that the, the gusto with which we reply, thanks be to God, after this is the word of the Lord, feels pretty directly proportional to the agreeability of the text, right? Like last week, Mike had the distinct privilege of reading the prodigal son, and we shook the room after this is the word of the Lord. We're like, yeah, thanks be to God. That was nice, and this will preach to the ends of the earth. Perhaps it's indicative of the size of the room today, that we were a little bit more sheepish in our thanks be to God today, but that's okay. This is, this is tricky. That's to be expected. And so I, I encourage you as we go uh, through my interpretation of what's happening here to, to process, uh, to test what I'm saying, to pray as you listen, because uh, the, the interpretation I'll share um, is, is held by many. That's, that's true. Um, you know, I'm not completely on an island in my interpretation of this parable, but there's also many who think differently, and that's, that's perfectly fine. And so, like I said, I encourage you, test what I say against what you know to be true about Scripture. Pray through it. The Holy Spirit knows what he wants you to hear, and I trust that he will say it. Okay, I've set this up enough. I think the best thing that we can do is just kind of start and relitigate the parable, right? Like, it feels like there should be so much more here. Like, we'd be so served if we had more details, but we don't. And so we're going to litigate the details that we do have, because I think there's plenty to see, but I think let's just go through the story one more quick time, and then we'll, we'll pause at key elements. So, so the first detail that we are made aware of in the text is that there is a wealthy master and a manager. Now, this is an incredibly common thing, right? You know, any, any first century person with significant assets would almost always have a manager. Usually, they would live in their household with them. Usually, they had known each other for a long time because this was, this was the chief of staff position, and a manager of a master's estate was, was sent to make deals on the master's behalf, and he spoke with the authority of the master. If, if a manager was speaking to someone in the master's debt, it was as if the master himself was speaking, and what the manager had to say was binding. So this, this was an incredibly vital role. It needed to be done well. It was the chief of staff of wealthy assets, and yet the very first introduction we have to this particular manager uh, comes by way of a, a whistleblower from the household who goes to the master and says, hey, your, your manager, he is wasting all of your assets. 
Now, especially if you understand in the context of this is probably someone the master has known for a long time. This is, you know, this is, this is a role that you earn through trust over a long period of time. This probably felt like such a betrayal. You know, if, if we really want to mute it, like, well, maybe it was, it was disappointing. Uh, but his, his chief steward is failing him. And so he demands an audience with his manager and he asks for him to respond. To this accusation. He said, what is this I hear about you? You know, what, what's going on? Do you, do you have anything to say for yourself? And it's, it's rather odd, but the steward just stands there and doesn't, doesn't say anything, doesn't respond at all. When asked, what is this I hear about you? He just stands, and the next words then are spoken by the master, and he says, turn over the account of your management. You know, that, that's fired on the spot. You're fired. Get, get out of here. This, this silence I'm interpreting as an admission of guilt. So hand over the books. You are clearly inept uh, at this task. So give me your books. You're fired and leave. Now, understandably, the steward interprets what's going on as putting him into a very precarious and complicated and probably dire situation, right? You know, we, we get the benefit of this internal dialogue he has with himself, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm too weak to dig, so, you know, manual labor's off the table, and I'm too ashamed to beg. So how, how now can I expect my needs to be met? You know, even, even more just on top of the basic needs being met, there were certain luxuries that were afforded to the manager of a rich master. You know, it certainly wasn't a role without its benefits. He would have had a a lavish existence in the master's household. And now all of these things in an instant are being stripped away and he doesn't know, he's scrambling how to continue this lifestyle for himself or even at the most bare, how am I going to get my needs met? Well, apparently, coming by provision honestly was out of the question, right? I think that, I think that evidences that his initial wasting of the manager's master's assets was... Him, him cheating, it was criminal, it just wasn't negligence because coming by provision, honestly, wasn't considered and he immediately hatches a plan. Like, I know, I know what to do for myself. I know how to ensure, you know, my, my wealth and success going forward. And he thinks of how he might curry favor with other would-be masters. You know, he could just have a lateral change and this wouldn't be all that devastating. Yeah, I'll leave this master's household, but I can, I can get a managerial role in someone else's house and then things will largely go unchanged. And so in this scheme to curry favor with would-be masters, he invites in the debtors of his master and we don't know how many. Um, it, it's probably not an insignificant number. We get the account of two but again, it's, it's a parable, so I'm not going to press it too far. But we get the accounts of two. And the first owes 100 measures of olive oil. And he says, cut it in half. Stroke of a pen. It's cut in half. And the second, 100 measures of wheat. And he says, take off 20%. And now the percentages of that debt alleviation are different, but the value is about the same. You know, 50 measures of olive oil and 20 measures of wheat both would have equated to about a year and a half's wages. So this is a significant 
reduction. You know, he is, he is slicing off a major portion. Likely, so later, he can be like, hey, I heard you came into some money. Or, you know, I hear you've got some wiggle room now. Why not use those funds on a manager? Whole plan. So after this fire sale takes place, the next scene we get in our parable is him standing in front of the master. And the expectation is he was, he was sent away to, to gather all his accounts, to gather all the books, and then return to the master and return them, kind of, you know, handing over the keys on your, on your way out. But as he hands over the books, it becomes clear to the master what has just happened. You know, the, the debt records are, are, are different now, and they're written in someone else's hand. And where we might expect this manager to be raked over the coals, like just absolutely brutalized by a cheated master. You know, you'll never work in this town again kind of thing. You know, I'll see to it that you beg and squalor the rest of your life. You know, that, that's kind of what we would expect. We get this line that thrusts this entire parable into controversy, that thrusts this entire parable, a parable you are probably tracking with to this point, into deep deep confusion, and it's this, and these are the words of Jesus, the master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. What? Some, some translations say he was praised, the master praised the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly, and at this point you have to learn, like, wait, what, is he the good guy? Like, is this, is this the twist at the end of the story that this guy who we thought was either, you know, criminal or, or negligent, just truly inept, who's hatching a scheme, who is apparently like a scrawny, weak dude, you know, nothing about this guy has been spoken in flattery to this point, but is he the hero? Well, Jesus did just identify him, even when you point out he's being praised as a dishonest manager and you know dishonesty isn't ordinarily something we tack on with heroism not in a biblical sense my gosh so what is happening here well herein lies the controversy and herein lies our difficulty because again this is where the parable ends we would be so served if there were more details but we don't get them that's our story do you see now why there's, there's no consensus kind of in the, in the theological scholastic world about what it is exactly Jesus meant? Well, so my interpretation of what's going on rests on three really key scenes throughout this parable. And so I know we just went through the parable once, but kind of quickly. I want to go back and camp on three particular scenes um, and hopefully then have a better understanding together of what it was Jesus meant for us to hear. The first, the first thing I want to talk about um, is the silence of the manager in front of his master. Now, we all know that feeling, right, of just being caught red-handed, right? Like, it's such an uncomfortable, squirmy feeling. Like, you're caught red-handed, and, you know, what are you doing? You know, there's, there's nothing to say. There's no defense for yourself. You're just kind of stunned into silence. We all, we all know that feeling. And so it, it wouldn't be an inappropriate assumption to think that's what's happening here. Um, but for this, 
you know, I'm going to lean heavily on the words of a man named Kenneth Bailey because he's an expert on Middle Eastern custom. And as he interpreted this first confrontation between the manager and the master, he had something really interesting to say about it. He said, even, even if the manager knew that his, his criminality or his ineptitude was justly exposed, even if he knew he was caught red-handed, he was dead to rights, he, had, he was wrong and had no way to talk himself out of that, if he cared anything for his relationship with the master, with his place in the household, he would have, he would have made some case. Largely, like, we've been together for for decades, man. You know, my, my father served your father. My grandfather served your grandfather. Yeah, I cheated here, and I'm so sorry about that. But I've proven myself faithful in X. I've done Y for you. You know, I don't get to this role without, without time and a modicum of trust. So I'm so sorry. Yes, you're right. This was wrong. But, like, remember the good times. We had some. Like remember, remember, remember the first reasons you hired me to this office. Kenneth Bailey said, if this manager cared anything for the relationship he had with the master, he would have been tripping over himself to plea, to make this defense that he should still be entrusted in the household. But again, silent. Not a word comes out of the manager's mouth to the master. The takeaway, as Bailey interpreted it, was he doesn't, he doesn't really care all that much whether his relationship with the master is broken. Actually, the only thing that kind of thrusts him into panic is the idea that his provisions and his luxuries are about to go away. You know, the relationship with the master, that is secondary at best. That is a, a necessary evil of re- living a comfortable life. So that's what he doesn't say. You know, it doesn't, doesn't speak up. Uh, but what, what he does say is quite important as well. You know, he, this, he says to himself, and it's a line we read over quickly um, and maybe don't give appropriate mind when he says, I'm too ashamed to beg. Now, we, that probably conjures these images in our mind of, you know, him like shaking a, a tin cup, just kind of like scrounging an existence on the roadside. And yeah, that's... That's probably what he had in mind, too. But I think that there can be a flip side to that coin when he says, I'm too ashamed to beg. And it's, I won't beg at the feet of the master. That I won't do. You know, I won't debase myself by asking for mercy. I'm a man of esteem in this area. I'm a manager of probably the most wealthy landowner in the region. This is an esteemed role, and I'm not going to debase myself by begging, one, on the street corner, but two, and maybe more importantly, at the feet of the master. I'm not going to do it. I won't ask for help. I'm not going to ask for pardon. In fact, the far more preferable alternative is making my own plan. Like, yeah, I'm in a bad spot, but at least I can maintain control, right? If I plead at his feet, if I beg for pardon, I'm entirely at his mercy. At least I can keep control in this situation and hatch my own plan. So that's the, that's, that's the first kind of major point of this story, is the silence 
of the manager not fighting for the relationship because evidently he doesn't care all that much for it and his inability and unwillingness to beg for pardon. And the second, the second scene in this parable that I, I, I kind of want to stake our flag in is, is the reception of the debtors after, after he leaves uh, the presence of the master. And this is really interesting. Uh, again, remember, a manager sent um, two, two debtors to clients um, was sent with the authority of the master himself. What he said was binding, and it represented the will of the master, right? And so I, w- I would argue that these debtors had no idea uh, that this manager was just fired, right? They, they had no idea that he had been removed from that position of authority and were still very convinced that what he said was coming straight from the master's lips. So it better be listened to. So you don't, you don't want to be in, in cahoots with a disgruntled ex-employee. You certainly wouldn't talk about your account balances or change your own debt record at the direction of a disgruntled, fired manager. Like, that's just a bad look, and you're basically guaranteeing after that that the master, who you are indebted to, isn't going to give you a fair shake anymore. So my guess is that they believed the manager was still acting in the authority of the master, and it's, it's amazing to them, right? Without explanation. They don't know why their debt is being slashed. Without explanation, by the stroke of a pen, they have these seismic reductions in what they owe the master. And, you know, I think this, this further evidences the manager's true feelings towards his master, like he has no problem cheating him. His default, you know, I'd rather cheat my master than come by provisions in an honest way, so... Like, yeah, he probably was criminal all along. He shows no hesitation in cheating him. But man, think about how the debtors are receiving this news. Like, you came with, with no agenda, sent by the master, no explanation. All you say is, I'm, I'm, I'm wiping out a significant portion of your debt. Like, what incredible good news. Kenneth Bailey describes it this way. Each debtor makes the suggested changes in his rental agreement and returns to the village to share the public good news with family and friends. As word spreads in the village, a festive mood breaks out in celebration of the most generous man who ever rented land in the history of the village. And yeah, his wonderful steward who aided his master in making these huge reductions. If you think, if he was making a year and a half worth's wages reduction for all of his debtors, you know, all presumably lived within the same kind of geographical footprint, imagine just the jovial spirit that would have moved through this area. Everyone is in celebration. And yeah, you know, the manager is riding the coattails of that goodwill. So, to his credit, to the manager's credit, his plan worked. Like, he was successful. He hatched a scheme, put this plan into action, and it worked. And yet, this leads to the last main observation that I want to make that I really think kind of gives color to all of this. After this, you know, the villagers are celebrating. Debt has been alleviated. This is just good news for so many. Goodwill is being shared. The manager is not restored. And I think this is key. 
you know, the manager is never restored to his place in the household of the master. I think we like to envision kind of that final uh, conversation between the two of them, like the master with a wry smile, like, all right, fine, yeah, you outfoxed me, like, all right, well, well done. You know, you've proven you're not as inept as I thought you were, um, so fine, take your old job back, you know, rascal, like, I think we, we like to envision that the manager, because he acted truly, was restored, but, but this doesn't happen. At the end of our parable, he's still fired, right? And no one else has hired him. Sure, he's curried some goodwill, but he, he's still out of a job. He's never, never restored. And I think it's also important that he never asks for his job back. You know, even after being praised by the master, like, that was, that was pretty clever. Like, that was, that was shrewd. He doesn't leverage that goodwill into asking for his job back. You know, the hallmark ending of this kind of parable would be the revelation that the master has. Like, wow, you really are, you really are, like, capable. I, 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 I want you back. But we just, we don't get that. He never asks to be reinstated, and he's not. So why is he praised? Like, that's the big question of this entire parable, right? Why is this dishonest manager, still identified as a dishonest man, why is he praised? Well, remember, he's commended for his shrewdness and only his shrewdness. There's no other reason that he's praised. And ordinarily, we would, we would categorize this as a good thing, right? You know, especially in business, we, we think a shrewd manager sounds like quite the asset. You know, the kind of guy you want around, but consider what the master says about shrewdness right after he praises the manager for his shrewdness. He says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their contemporaries than the people of light. For the people of this world are more shrewd than the people of righteousness. And now you're given pause again. You're like, well, shrewdness sounds bad. I don't understand. Like, was he praised for being shrewd? And now you're saying shrewdness, as you describe it, is bad. What, why, why, why is shrewdness bad? Well, I think what he's communicating is that shrewdness is about controlling, it's about taking, it's about getting a way to resource yourself. It's about finding a way to meet your own needs. And Jesus is preaching to Pharisees, to beggars, to lepers, to his apostles, and saying, yeah, that's what being shrewdness is like. You know what? We celebrate it a lot. Finding a way to serve yourself, being in control, hatching a plan that comes to fruition. But the way of Jesus, it's not shrewd. It's not shrewd at all. The way of Jesus is about submitting, and it's about receiving. And so this, this commendation that the manager receives from the master is, is, I believe, much more in the tone of, well, congratulations. Like, you, you, you knew what you wanted, and guess what? You got it. You were clever. You were shrewd. You cared to be financially taken care of, and you probably will be. But now get out. You didn't fight for this post. You didn't ask for mercy. You did not plead for this job back. And as it appears, you didn't care anything for this relationship. What you did care about was money. And you know what? You'll get that. 
You'll get as much as you want, I'm sure. Your shrewdness has paid off, so congratulations. Well done. C.S. Lewis said, There are only two kinds of people. Only two. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. And the latter is hell. The master said, so I believe, to his manager, all right, thy will be done, but now depart from me. And also, and I think this is funny, in a very real sense, I think the praise that the master gave to the manager probably felt like such a jab, right? Like, you meant to cheat me. Like, you, you set out to, to use me um, after, you know, a long time of criminality um, and exploiting my generosity and wealth. You, you, you tried to use me for your own gain. And you know what you did? You actually just enhanced my reputation all over the place. And yeah, you depleted my assets, sure. But that's another thing about the master. He doesn't seem to be all that bothered by it, right? Like, he doesn't really seem to care that much that his assets were, were depleted. I mean, if you think from the very beginning of this story, when he, when he confronts the manager... He had every right to demand repayment at that point or to throw him into debtor's prison if he didn't. Um, And he just let it go. And then when he's defrauded and the accounts are changed, he doesn't doesn't go and say, you know, no, 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 no. The guy who did this was not acting in my name. He had no authority to do this. So, you know, the original deal's back on. You're You're not reduced in any way. Like, he lets all of this go. He's already proven himself to be an overwhelmingly generous master. So he doesn't seem to care all that much that his assets are depleted. But you know what he has now? Because of the unintended consequences of the manager, a bolstered reputation through the whole area. He is glorified by those in his debt. What the manager meant for harm only enhanced the master's glory. Um, I've, been, <clears throat> I've been reading uh, The Silmarillion, which is uh, Tolkien's work uh, kind of, of, of history and lore from before The Lord of the Rings. Um, many haven't read it because, you know, it reads like a phone book. Like, it's it just, it's dense. It's, it's kind of dull. Um, but it's really great, right, Kale? Kale knows. Um, and I would recommend it to you. But there's this, uh, there's this scene at the, near the beginning of the Silmarillion. It, it's Tolkien's kind of lore of creation narrative. You know, how Middle Earth came to be. And there's this, uh, the creator uh, deity is named Eru. And he has a song in his mind. And he wants to get this song out. And so he creates singers. And he empowers each of his first 14 singers to sing a different element of the song. And Eru just sits back and he, he basks in the beauty of this tune, you know, the tune that he's empowered these 14 singers to offer back to him. But there's one of the 14 named Melkor. And Melkor is pretty tired of singing Eru's tune. He, he's, he just doesn't want to do it anymore. He'd rather create his own. And so he, he starts to sing a dissonant tune, initially just to frustrate the overall tune that Eru has orchestrated with his 14. And 
Melkor's plan is eventually to take over the chorus and for them to be singing his song. And time after time, Eru then will, will change the song and what was meant to be dissonant blends in and is melodic and making the song even more beautiful. And Melkor's frustrated by that, so he sings even more dissonantly and Eru changes the, sing, the other 13 singers. And then what Melkor has done blends in and it's melodic again. And the song just becomes more and more beautiful and Eru is taking more and more pleasure in it. And Melkor is so frustrated because he's trying to sing his own song. He doesn't want to sing Eru's song anymore. And yet, just by a little change, Eru makes the frustrating, meant-for-harm work of Melkor blend right in. And it's beautiful. And Eru just enjoys it. And Eru has this conversation with Melkor, kind of when this is all going on, that I'll put it up because it reads like old English, and I'll read it slowly because, I mean, it is so nice. And I think not a bad description of what's happening here. So this is Eru talking to Melkor. Thou, Melkor, shall see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite nor can any alter the music in my despite. I love that line. For he that attempts this shall prove but my instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. Don't you want to read the Silmarillion now? I mean, this, this also feels a lot like, you know, Joseph talking to his brothers in Egypt after he had become a what? a household manager. And, he, and he's telling his brothers who threw him into slavery, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. None can alter the music in my despite. But I think the master is saying to the manager, yeah, what you meant for harm ultimately served my glory my reputation, my name is on the lips of everyone in this area, praising my generosity. Yeah, you tried to cheat me, but they're singing my song now. So to wrap the story before we talk briefly about the response, I believe what we just heard is a parable about a cheat who got exactly what he wanted. His plan worked. Shrewdness prevailed. He was clever. Mm -hmm. But his plan saw him dismissed from the home, removed from authority, and then without relationship at its end. In turn, the master who appeared to be cheated was praised by the masses and glorified by those in his debt. And that is not a bad telling of the gospel, right? Now, as you might expect, because this always seems to be the case, the Pharisees are incensed after they hear this parable. My gosh, when aren't they? And I think it's easy to, to connect those dots if this is the right interpretation of the parable. Because they are the dishonest managers, right? They love money. Our, our text went as far as to include this parenthetical statement. The Pharisees, who loved money, and then kind of talks about their gripe after this parable has ended. They are the dishonest managers. And many of them are wealthy. 
They've been made wealthy by their office in what could be described as a managerial role for the master, right? And Jesus says to them, congratulations, well done. You have received your reward in full. And I never knew you. You're getting precisely what you wanted, guys. You're getting control. Sure, you can have it. You're getting wealth. Why not? You have power, pride that's well intact. But you know what you will not get? The things you never asked for. You won't get mercy because you didn't ask for mercy. You won't get relationship because you weren't interested in that. And most of all, you will not get a place in my home. I believe this is what he's getting at when he says, perhaps the most and maybe really only palatable line after the first reading, you cannot serve God and money. You know, this, is, this, is, this is a serious thing to say because it's, it's not like a person and an entity. God is, God is doing this funny thing. He's holding up money as a competitor to a relationship with him. He's like describing money as a true rival to being in his household. And this word that we translate money is the word mammon. And, and mammon is, is a really loaded word. It was left untranslated from Aramaic into Greek. You know, the Aramaic word is mammon, and it was left as mammon because it was such a profoundly important and loaded word. And so I could say a lot about it, but I think what Andy Crouch said about it was the most helpful. So I'm going to say that, and I think I have a slide. He says, mammon separates power from relationship. Mammon separates abundance from dependence and excess from request. The power of mammon at its very heart is a separating power. Like, yeah, you can have power, abundance, excess, but it's going to be completely void of relationship. It's going to be completely void of dependence. And it's going to be completely void of asking for anything. Could you see why Jesus would hold this up and say, a relationship with me and mammon are incongruent things. These are true rivals. And you have to, you have to pick one. You can't serve God and mammon. To be a servant of mammon is to hatch your own scheme, right? To maybe, to maybe leverage the master's name to meet your own needs. To be in control. To stay silent in front of accusation. Where the way of Jesus is standing rightly accused, justly exposed, and begging for mercy. And the payoff of those two are radically different. Yeah, mammon will give you the wealth, the power, the influence, all, all the things you want. You can have that. But a relationship with Jesus gives you mercy and a place in the household. So what's the danger for us? Right? Like we knew the Pharisees were irritated by this. Well, what, what's the danger for us? Well, I think, and you know, this might have sounded like a compliment at the beginning, but maybe now it's less flowery. I think we are a really shrewd people. I think Western Christians in particular have been conditioned shrewdly. And, and we, we really like money. And there's, there's no other way to describe it. We just do, right? Like we really, we really like money and we almost always know how to get what we want. We need to ask for very little. We're earners and we're celebrated for that. We love mammon. Mm. 
Guys, we love mammon. Let's not kid ourselves. We love abundance without dependence, and we love excess without request. We like being an island to ourselves. We like being self-sufficient, right? We like not needing to lean on anyone else if we can hold ourselves up. But have we ever thought that these like can-do, go-getter, bootstraps aspects of our person, aspects of our habits might be a real hindrance to following the way of Jesus? Like, and that's a stark warning. And I'm at the, like, the center of that. I, I know it. You know, like, these things will deter me from following the way of Jesus. And that frightens me. Um, Francis Chan was, was teaching on the, you know, the passage we've probably all before. You know, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we've explained that away in every single way we can. The mental gymnastics and mental energy spent on that passage alone are funny. Because we, we love mammon, and we want to figure out a way that we can both serve it and God at the same time. They're not rivals. Blend so beautiful. Well, Francis Chan said, you know what? I've, I've given so much thought, so much thought, to this idea that it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And you know what? I think I've got it. After study and prayer and, and, and reading, I think I've got the true definition. Are you ready? It's really difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You cannot serve God and mammon. These are incompatible things, and that's a real danger to us. We are Western Christians, and we've been conditioned in this likeness. And we need to acknowledge that about ourselves. You know, all the parables we've heard in recent week um, detail celebrations, right? Like, a, a, you know, a party that the prodigals returned, a, a banquet that someone threw, you know, all these, all these party stories. And, and ours is kind of Im, Im, implicit, you know, we, we read between the lines to get there. But yeah, you know, a year and a half's wages for so many people, they're going to celebrate that reality. So all these parables with their payoff at a party. And these parables also indicate who's there, who's at the party. It's the beggars, we heard that in one parable, the least, confessing prodigals, and now debtors. Those are the people at the parties. And then we also get detail of those on the outside who aren't a part of the celebration. And it's those who have something better to do. It's the self-righteous, you know, the younger or the older brother of the prodigal. I could always serve you. Um, and now, it's the shrewd. Those are the people who are left out of the celebration of these parables. I'm just making the observation. And I'm also making an observation when I say that I much more often would characterize myself in the left out category, right? Like that one is much more true to my story than those who are celebrating. And to use a phrase that Mike has referred to a lot by this Episcopal chef priest, um, Capon, he says, the gospel raises dead people and only dead people. The gospel raises dead people 
and only dead people. And this is where we confess that our shrewdness, our habits, our desire for power, for wealth, comfort, whatever, stand in the way. Because the reality is shrewdness has no place at this table. This is not a, a table for the shrewd. This isn't a way that's bought to. The manager was too proud to ask. So he didn't, and he was never restored. This table is a place where we acknowledge that we are rightly and justly exposed as criminal before the master. We're not just negligent. We didn't just make a mistake. We're criminal. We're cheats. And I hope we aren't like the manager, too ashamed to beg at the feet of the master, because that's the very people who get welcomed back into the household and restored to a place, not just managerial, but in the family. Sonship, heirs. And this is the master's table. No shrewdness is welcome here. Only beggars. Let's pray. Jesus, we complicate following you because we love so many other things. We love you, we do, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure. But we love so many other things as well. And all of them are vying for our affection, vying for our loyalty. So forgive us. We followed the wrong affections. We've sought control. We're lovers of mammon. Rid us of all of that in the power of Jesus' name. Make us crave above everything your household, relationship with you, and to sing your song, not our own. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.